Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Donwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we are going to be delving into Mage the Awakening. Before we get into all that, though, what is going on? The pulp campaign, the two-headed serpent that the three of us worked on, is now out in hardback in a shop near you. Yes, gorgeous full-colour design, glossy pages, beautiful artwork. Uh, yes, it has turned into a thing of beauty. Woo-hoo. I'm very, very happy with the way it has turned out. Oh, yes. A lot of work went into that. <laughs> God, yes. Yes. <laughs> but I'd like to think it was worth it. I mean, the reactions we've seen so far have been pretty positive. So, yeah, yes, I think it's been worth it. And something else you worked on is also out, right, Matt? Yeah, the, the Grand Grimoire of Cthulhu Mythos Magic, um, also on a shelf next to the Two-Headed Serpent, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, same same wonderful production value. Yeah, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous tome. Matt worked on the world's biggest spreadsheet oh, just God, for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was many, many hours poring over that sheet. <laughs> I, I'm not sure it really kind of sells the the mystical, magical ideals <laughs> of their saying that it was all done in Excel. <laughs> At least it wasn't PowerPoint. Well, if, if I did remember having a chat back and forth with Mike about which spells to, to cut, which to keep in, and there is the Netwraith spell, which did say, oh, you haven't got any tech spells if you take this one out. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> Excel gets some love in Mythos Magic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And the Kickstarter campaign for Cthulhu Dark recently wrapped up, and it's more than funded. I mean, it was something like, uh, I think, what, 1,200%? I mean, it was certainly over £70,000, so it did really, really well. Many. Unfortunately, it didn't quite reach the final stretch goal, or the penultimate stretch goal, uh, which was the mini-campaign I was supposed to be doing. Uh, Yeah, Um, but I've been talking to Graham about that, and we're looking for other ways of actually getting that out into print, even if it's not as part of the main campaign. Uh, So, yeah, I'll, I'll share some news when I have some. Also, good friend of the good friends, Lee Williams, um, is also looking for submissions for his Dark Times fanzine. This is the kind of follow-up to Proto-Dimension. Exactly, right? yes. Yeah. 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 So it's a, a free PDF-only uh, fanzine that he puts out. It licenses a number of different game lines, including Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green. Uh, so if you've written any material or you're interested in writing some material for those games uh, or many other horror games, then get in touch with Lee. We'll, we'll put a link on the show notes. I mean, Dark, Dark Conspiracy is a, fa- a favourite of his, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what Proto Dimension started out uh, as a fanzine for. But since then, it's branched into all sorts of other things, including uh, yeah, many games that we've talked about on, on the podcast, uh, like Unknown Armies, mm. Dead of Night, Hot War. So, you know, there's plenty plenty of scope there well let's move on one of my favorite segments just because i can see scott glaring at me over the microphone already yes it is time once again for the lovecraftian word of the the and now the lovecraftian word of the week and this week our word is quite appropriately Wizard. A noun. One. One who practices magic, a sorcerer or magician. Two. 
a skilled or clever person. Hey, I'm a wizard. Hey. Three, archaic, a sage. Not onion, it is sage. Yeah, often when we think of wizards now, I think in popular culture, we think of Gandalf and Dumbledore, who or, are fairly benevolent figures. Or Dorwood. Largely, huh? Or Dorwood. Or, or Scott, indeed. Yeah, who's indeed. the most benevolent figure one can think of. <laughs> uh, but in Lovecraft's work, these are kind of dark and dangerous and uh, foul. scary, foul people. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Wizardry in Lovecraft is deeply unwholesome. Wizards are steeped in the mythos. They deal with extraterrestrial forces, uh, forces beyond human comprehension. And this never really ends well for anyone. So obviously you fear wizards. You're saying this like all these things are negative. I just don't <laughs> comprehend this. But I think Lovecraft's approach there is probably much closer to the idea that people might have had of wizards you know, before, you know, say, Tolkien came along. The idea that people who wielded magical forces like this w were not good people. Certainly, I think, from a Call of Cthulhu perspective, there's a lot to be said for embracing this, this older idea of wizardry. Let, let's go back to making wizards skin-crawling abominations. Well, uh, this has something to do also with the use of magic by player characters. When does one who can use spells, become a wizard. Hmm. That may be a topic for another episode. It's one we've discussed doing at some stage. Hmm. Because the very point that you just said about a wizard being a, a, a foul person who is into the dark arts, I'm, I'm sounding more like Harry Potter here, but um, <laughs> surely that implies the use of magic is a force for evil and a force for wrongness in the world. Which, again, in Lovecraft, it probably should be. And speaking of you know, its use in Lovecraft, I, the word wizard turns up 15 times in his fiction and another 11 times as words like wizardry and so on. So it's, it's not an uncommon word in, in his stories, but um, it does tend to focus on two stories in particular or appears mostly in two stories in particular. Uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward and the Dunwich Horror. So let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word wizard in his writings. From... The festival. Wisely did Ibn Shikabau say that happy is the tomb where no wizard hath lain, and happy the town at night whose wizards are all ashes. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Perhaps it was what they had heard of the infamous old wizard whose picture had once stared from the panelled overmantel, and perhaps... It was something different and irrelevant. But in any case, they all half-sensed an intangible miasma which centred in that carven vestige of an older dwelling and which at times almost rose to the intensity of a material emanation. And from the Dunwich Horror. Oh, oh my God, that half-face, that half-face on top of it. That face with the red eyes and crinkly albino hair and no chin like the Waitleys. It was an octopus, centipede, spider kind of thing. But there was a half-shaped man's face on top of it and it looked like Wizard Waitleys, only it was yards and yards across. And we say we can't do accents when it comes to NPCs. No, we can't. What are we saying? <laughs> Mac the just demonstrated 10 right there. <laughs> And on to today's main topic, Mage the Awakening. 
So a little while ago, in episode 105, we discussed an overview of the World of Darkness games, and we thought it might be interesting, particularly seeing as we had some quite good response to that episode, to drill down and talk about a few of the individual games. So we're going to start off with a discussion of Mage the Awakening. I think Mage is a good one to do, because I think most people are passingly familiar at least with vampire and it's easy to kind of get a handle on what vampire is all about Mm. and werewolf you know similarly i mean there are complexities to these games that one doesn't get initially but one can formulate a broad concept of what they are whereas mage i think is different i think it's it's less set in traditional horrors that one is is familiar with and of course we have our host, Matt Sanderson, who is well-versed in the world of darkness. So just paint a picture, Matt. Where did it start out and how did it develop? Just a brief overview of that. Well, this is the newer version of Mage. Um, This is when you have two games that both have the same acronym, effectively, MTA. Some people get confused whether it's Mage the Ascension or Mage the Awakening. Mage the Awakening is the newer one. Mage the Ascension was the original game as part of what was... Originally known as World of Darkness, then became classic World of Darkness, and is now back to World of Darkness. Whereas Mage the Awakening is part of what was originally New World of Darkness, and now known as Chronicles of Darkness. I'm trying to confuse you deliberately. Yeah, I'm I'm already (laughs) lost here. So essentially we had Mage the Ascension back in the the kind of early mid-90s. Yeah, nice, very purple, um, got velvet cover. Yeah, that kind of Cadbury's silk-cut looking cover. Mm, Um, Tasty cover. (laughs) And now, what do we have now? We have Mage the Awakening. Yep, which is a blue kind of tablet which has been broken and is underwater through shimmering light effects and is a very, very pretty looking book. And what's the other one that we also have in publication now? We also have Mage the Ascension 20th Anniversary. Okay. So, which is essentially still Mage the Ascension. But we're going to talk about the Chronicles of Darkness uh, version, the second edition particularly, which is the one that came out, uh, what was it, last year? Indeed, yeah, last year, after quite a long wait. um, Between the last book that was put out for Awakening um, traditionally, which was The Left-Handed Path, that was back in November 2012, we had to wait until May 2016 for the new new edition. So we'll say it was quite a long wait in terms of... Um, but at least the preceding material had come out fairly regularly up until then. And this is still being published by Onyx Path, is it? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, listener, if you're looking to get into Mage after hearing this discussion, then we're talking about the an up-to-date edition which you could go out and buy now. From DriveThruRPG. You won't find it in shops. Okay. Yeah, this this was a model that um, White Wolf, when it was still White Wolf way back in the day, um, decided that because there was such an exponential drop-off of game stores in the US that they switched to a pretty much solely digital model. So they partnered with drive Through RPG and all the books were then produced as print-on-demand through them. Oh, okay. So mm. if you want a hardback copy of this, you can get it through drive Through RPG. Yeah, you can get hardback. I believe you can get softback as well. You can get colour, black and white, or you used to be able to with those. I but think you, but you can't go now. to the game shop and you can't go to an online seller like Amazon or whatever... And, and buy this. You can get some stuff from Amazon now because I know Onyx Path have been branching out, but mainly with their fiction books. You won't find many in terms of the RPG books up there unless it's a private seller that's gone, I've got a print-on-demand copy, I'll put it on Amazon. Sure. Right, right. Now, their sole distribution outlet now these days for books, new books, is 
drive-through. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. And also then to avoid confusion, you said that uh, Mage 20 or Mage, uh, the Ascension, is mm-hmm. is active as well at the moment. Yes. So um, mm-hmm. is, is that still, is that just the core book or are they releasing supplements for that separately as well? They're both. Um, you've got the core book, which is a breeze blocker book. It is, in no uncertain terms, fucking huge. It's easily bigger than the Masks, Masks of the Arthur the Tep Companion volume, which has just been shipped out by 60 Stone Press. It's well over 700, 800 pages. Hmm. It is honestly huge. So, so if you're buying uh, new releases for Mage, you'll want to check whether they're for the Ascension or the Awakening. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because they're, they're not compatible. If it has the remotest hint of purple on it, it's Ascension. Right. Um, because they still stick to the original format of the, um, the layout of the covers and books. But yeah, the last the last release for Awakening was the Second Ed core book, say, which is now last year. Let's jump in then to talking about what Mage actually is. And to start off with, what well, I'll ask what I think is probably a fairly obvious question, which is, in in the game, what is a Mage? There's no one simple answer, even though it seems like a, sim- a simple question. In bare outline, mage is a template that you put on top of a regular human being. They are not different in terms of physical makeup. They're not like a vampire. They're not augmented DNA or they're not like a monster. They are basically a bog-standard human fleshy fleshy meat bag sack that just has magical power. There's nothing otherwise special about them. Essentially, a mage awakens, hence the title of um, the title of the game, because of a specific set of events happening in their life that relate to their their kind of personality, that if they are someone who's potentially quite a, a morbid or quite a downbeat or darkened soul, maybe pessimistic and such, something happens to them that's maybe a series of tragedies, they they, they lose their, um, their mother and father, something goes wrong, they end up losing their house, their um, career crumbles, everything starts falling apart for them, that they will start hearing a call, almost like a compulsion to go and do something. Someone who instead, in another example, has a very set, rigid way of life, that they have a very set routine, suddenly decides one day that they're going to break that routine, suddenly finds things happen to them and their world starts to change around them. It's that moment when they step outside of their normal comfort zone and their normal boundaries that they are, I suppose you could say they're targeted um, by powers that be, and this is where the cosmology part starts to come into this, um, in from another realm where you could equate it as being a war in heaven, uh, that you have two sides fighting a war that has been uh, waging for the best part of a couple of thousand years, maybe even longer, and they are looking for people to join this conflict as new mages. That these people have stepped outside of their kind of pattern of life and have been identified. You are someone that could potentially be of use, and that pa- um, you can hold, you could wield power that they start to go through this awakening process and they become a mage, that they have a connection to the supernal realm where magic comes from. And what are these two forces, these two cosmic forces called? Uh, you've got the oracles, which are nominally, um, you could say they are the good guys. But again, good and bad is a very... So the fairly grey areas in which side is, is the one you want to be on? Kind of. It depends on your, out- it depends on your outlook. As a player? Yeah, generally. Yeah. The, the, or, the oracles are considered the good guys, whereas the exarchs on the other side are very much 
painted up initially as the bad guys. But again, it's all about your interpretation. But is there any assumption then that player characters will be with one faction or the other, or do you get complete choice about that? Uh, depending on what the GM allows. Right. Um, and one group of players, would they all be on one side? Or, I mean, if people were on different sides, would that create a big conflict in it w- play? It would, be, it would be complicated, but you'd prob- you could potentially have like a seer infiltrator in a pentacle game. For example, Um, the groups which follow these uh, different groups, the oracles are followed by a loose-knit group. You sometimes refer to as the pentacle, sometimes referred to as the diamond. It depends on whether you include a fifth group in there or not, whether it's four or five. Um, This is a little bit of a hark back to Ascension, where you had the hollow ones who were sometimes you could consider them as being part of the wider traditions or they're on, on the outside. And then on the other side of the fence, the ones that follow the exarchs, are a group referred to themselves as the Seers of the Throne. They're kind of a technocracy parallel, in a, in a way, from Ascension. The technocracy being... Uh, in, in Ascension language, you had the conflict... The major conflict of the game was uh, magic versus technology. Techno- okay. Technology was the technocracy. They were very much painted out to be the bad guys. But again, it depends on your point of view. That, so you can see parallels in some of the structure of the game, rather not so much the themes, because the themes are quite different in Awakening compared to Ascension. But you can kind of peg that, oh, that's where that, that idea comes from, and that's where that idea comes from, and so on. You mentioned the themes of the game. What, what are they? It comes down to the conflict of why this war is happening between the Exarchs and the Oracles. The Oracles essentially want to see magic for everybody! Everybody has... Uh, you get a phone, you get a phone, you get a phone. <laughs> they, they're very much kind of the, the Opera Winfrey of magic. Um, whereas the Exarchs believe, what's the point in power if you haven't got someone to shit on? and that you haven't got someone to grind under your heel. And they believe that if there's power, it only works if you've got someone below you that you can basically whip and do your um, do all the stuff that you don't want to do. Okay, that's fairly easy to get your head around then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they essentially, we want power, but you can't. Yeah. So that that is very much the, um, the core theme. Whereas previously you had a lot more nuance, like I say, magic versus science, old versus new. Um Magic for everyone, is it a force that could rip reality apart versus, no, you you idiots, you're going to destroy reality. I'd rather have it in this form, static and non-changing, because at least we've got something rather than nothing. Whereas this is purely comes down to who has the power and what you do with it. So it's a kind of a, a magical communism as opposed to a magical kind of aristocracy who hold all the power. Exactly that, yeah. Okay. And what exactly is magic in mage? It's... A lot more universal in Awakening than it was previously in Ascension. Um, Ascension was pretty much magic was whatever you, your force of reality to rewrite the world seen through a particular lens. A bit like uh, magic and unknown armies in that respect. Mm. That it was your will shapes how you perform magic. Whereas in Awakening, it's a lot more universal that everyone does it the same way. Um, that they see particularly... Again, through a through a lens, they see shapes. Um, they call imagos. Um, they were previous in first edition. It was hinted that they're more like Atlantean runes. They're like an old language that no one can quite understand, like a, a universal language of magic. That they picture a particular shape or a particular letter that represents a particular spell, and then draw down power from the supernal through that symbol to then um, to rewrite the world around you. So the supernal being uh, the supernal is the realm where. Um, you've got the war going on between the Exarchs and the Oracles. Okay, so that where that war is taking place is in another dimension, another realm kind of thing, and we can draw energy from that yeah. across, into this world. Across the abyss that divides the two. One of the 
bits that hasn't been categorically laid down, which is one of the one of the things I quite like about the Chronicles of Darkness settings over the old world settings, is that a lot of the origin stories are only hinted at or they provide options on. One of the options for how to explain the mage backstory is that magic has been part of the um, the world since year dot, and various people have started to learn how to harness it. But way back in a lovely little city that was all utopian and harmonious called Atlantis, little place that no one's ever heard of, uh, they started having falling outs as to what to use it for. And one group tried to build a silver ladder, very much like a Jacob's ladder, a ladder to heaven that they could try and exploit it to its own, uh, to its ultimate ends. That drew, uh, basically drew a line in the sand between various groups. The ladder shattered and the world was broken as a result. So the Supernal flew off with its magic in one direction. The Fallen World, this world as we know it, went off in the other direction. And you have this big whopping gap in the middle that's referred to as the Abyss, which is basically a nice GM box to say, if you want any chaotic, weird shit and pure evil, it comes out of that. And these two forces that went off from Atlantis, so they were kind of pre-humans or perhaps human? Potentially. Again, yeah. this, is, this is for the GM they, to start putting So they've in gone off they to this other realm and they're having this big battle, but they're drawing in troops from our world? Yes. That as so, so as player, sorry, as player characters, I start off as a mage. I've I've awakened, uh, and I'm working for one of these two cosmic factions. I, I operate on Earth in the world of darkness, but I can in some way go and fight in the other realms. Would I do that, or potentially, eventually, if your right. GM wanted to do that? So that'd be something. That, that one would perhaps aspire to in the future. Yeah. Think think of it in D&D terms as getting to level 20 or level 40. Uh -huh. It's when okay. you get to such a high level that you are known as an Arcmaster. You can walk the golden path that runs between the two. Okay. And it's basically, go on to the new advanced mage! Off in the distance. Yeah. <laughs> and You've talked about the two main factions there, but um, there are lots of subdivisions, aren't there? For oh, God. Basically, fine-tuning your character in game terms or you know, within the um, w within the game setting itself, providing different uh, motivations mm. and different perspectives. I mean, I, how do those actually work? Oh, this is a heart back and again, something that separates it very much from the classic World of Darkness games where... Use, let's say vampire terms, for example, that you were a brujar, that meant you had certain disciplines and you were usually part of the Camarilla. This is a lot more choose from column A, then column B, then column C. There's not just, oh, you're this one splat, therefore it's... So a you lot don't really have a class. No, no, it's no. Very, very much split. Um, all mages fit into one of five paths. Those paths are determined largely by your personality. Um, they give you an outlook on what stereotypical mindset you have. But again, these, these conventions can be broken, but generally it's what kind of personality you are dictates what path you have. That path determines what your two primary types of magic are. I mean, there are ten arcana, previously known as spheres, uh, from Ascension, the types of magic that you can do. And can you just tell us about maybe a couple of those? So would, would they be kind of like you know, elemental magic, or, or are we talking something else? Or They, they try to codify magic in a term of if you can think of it you can do it you just need the right combination of any of these 10 um, you've got death matter uh, forces prime which is a bit more of a kind of catch-all magic the magic of magic time um, time yep yeah, fate uh, life and spirit okay so these to me, bring back memories of playing Ars Magica where there were various aspects of magic mm -hmm. and 
there were codified spells or there was spontaneous magic where you could just pull a couple of those things to combine them yeah to create a appropriate effect yeah in in theory because each one um each level each particular arcana has a different level of power so you can do greater things at each level um, as long as you have the right combination of different arcana that you want to do you could in theory do anything yeah all mages fit within these five paths that each one has two of those ten arcana that they can draw upon, although everyone obviously has access to it eventually, but just at varying levels. On the pentacle side, the ones who serve the oracles, you have five, although again it depends on your opinion, five or four groups that work together. You have the Adamant and Arrow, which are basically the soldiers. You have the Guardians of the Veil, which are... You kind of could see them as a secret police in one sense. They're the ones who try to make sure that magic doesn't get known to the masses before before their time, or ones basically that go, hey, we don't want another Spanish Inquisition burning all the witches. Um, you've got the Silver Ladder. Basically, they have, yeah, poles shoved so far up their anus they bend time and space with them. Basically, the, the arrogant aristocracy, the ones that say we are the leaders. Got the adventure equivalent from Requiem. You can tell I'm a fan of them. Um, the Mysterium. Tomb rob- uh, grave robbers, tomb raiders. Yeah, the ones that go out looking, looking for all the magical stuff. They, they're fun. And the Free Council, the ones that are on the fringe, the ones that are embracing different methods of doing things, kind of a bit like a technocracy parallel, do we? They, they were originally part of the Seers, but then split off. Um, and on the Seers side, you have four ministries. These are all essentially methods of control that, like I said, they want to be power so that they can have people under their heel or people that they can let the, uh, let the proverbial roll downhill on, um, hill onto. The Panopticon, which are effectively Orwell's worst nightmare, their big brother state. The Paternoster Ministry is all about using religion as a method of control against the masses, um, kind of giving them some belief to follow and be blinded by. Um, the Hegemonic Ministry is about government, big business, organisations, everything that rules the world today pretty much as a machine to keep us under control. And the Praetorian Ministry, which is essentially a kind of parallel of the uh, Adamantan Arrow, that they are like, military, conflict, war, as methods of control. And as a player character, then I might take on, I might be, I'd be one of these various factions, yeah, or you, they would inform my agenda in play. They could do. They, I'd say they probably inform a good ninety percent of your normal characters. There are, as with all of the World of Darkness games, there are groups on the fringe which you could also be members of, which have their own agendas. So I'm just trying to be clear as as a player: is it likely my whole group? is part of, uh, you know, one of those factions like the Panopticon or, or whatever it might be working for a mission for them? Or is it that various players would be members of different factions? Generally, you would all be members of either the Pentacle or the Diamond or the Seas of the Throne. There wouldn't be an overlap between those. Hmm. But you could be different orders. Like, you could have an Arrow in the party, you could have a Guardian in the party or a Mysterium, the Silver Ladder that everyone wants to kick around the group because no one likes him. Or you could be one of the seers where, again, you could be different ministries that are brought together. You don't have to solely say we are just a panopticon cell or we are just a hegemonic cell. The groups do work together and together. And that's just to some extent where a lot of the fun can come from when you look at the political game. Because it's your different agendas of your different ministries or orders which conflict against your own instructions. And in the game, does that also function as a form of niche protection? It's a way to divide up that everyone doesn't do magic uh, the same, hmm. and that then everyone has a 
particular shtick that they are good at, or they they have their own agenda and their own kind of class as such that say you've got your fighter, you've got your mm. cleric, you've got your wizards. It's similar to that. So yeah, yeah. You, you could look at it as an East Protection, yeah. Now, we've established that the second edition of The Awakening came out last year, 2016. Yep. Uh, but obviously, you know, Mage of the Awakening has been around at this stage for 12 years, and there have been a lot of books published for it. So are those other books still in line with this new reinvention of The Awakening, or has that functioned as a sort of year zero? There's a very big shift in terms of mechanics, and the mechanics are very, very different in certain aspects. All the setting is still there. That's fine. Um, that hasn't changed. But mechanically, how things work on your sheets and how, how much things cost and so on is different. So there is a little bit of update you have to do as a GM or as a player to get it to work. And have Onyx Path provided conversion notes to allow you to, to use all these old materials? I would imagine it's in the second ed rulebook, but if it is, I haven't found it. With all this additional material then that's been published over the years, does this mean that the the, the setting is now kind of really big and complex, or um, yeah, or, or have these books sort of just filled in particular bits and um, you know given you adventures and tools to use? Well, there's one thing that. Um World of Darkness in general hasn't done for a very, very long time. In fact, I don't think since the, the 90s, it hasn't released many adventures for the games in general. Okay. You've got Reign of the Exarchs, which is a campaign which was done for Mage and was one of the first books they released for the game line. Um, you've then had a couple of PDF-only um, adventures, Lines of Power and so on. Um, but there's very little by way of published adventures for the game. Huh, so most of this is just source material and background material and... The vast majority, like a good 95% plus, is is source book material. Interesting. And is there much in the way of metaplot to this? Again, they don't generally tend to treat Chronicles of Darkness as having much of a metaplot. Um, this is something, again, they wanted to differentiate when they did Classic World of Darkness and New World of Darkness that they wanted to step away from. They'd rather give you a canvas and lots of toys that you can play around with and make it a lot more sandbox and make it your own. So the original set of source books expanded upon bits that were in the core rulebook. So like you had your order books, you had a little bit of history, you had books on different realms and so on. But as it's evolved... Some of the latter, well, really the latter end stuff before Second Ed came out was geared about alternate settings or, like I said, that comment about advancing to the Supernal Realm, the Imperial Mysteries, so becoming and playing an Archmage. So that really did start to expand it a lot more with stuff that hadn't been um, talked about in the, in the core book at that point. But the rest is filling in gaps and expanding various uh, various sections rather than going, here is something completely new that you've never heard of before. It's gotcha. no, just expansion mm -hmm. thereon. Let's take a quick look then at what happens when you actually play Mage. I guess as a player coming to this game, Matt, one of my concerns would be, you know, everything you've just said, have I, how much of that have I got to get a grip on before I can even make a player character? It's a problem I've found as a GM when I want to run a game at conventions. Um, particularly, I've only ever run one um, Awakening game at a convention and found this was a, a stumbling block. To have a good game at a convention that isn't just, you're all new mages here, deal with the problem... Mm. 
it involves that you have to know a fair bit of the setting, you have to know about, about the organisations and also how magic works. It is a lot of information to digest, which is why you ended up having a dossier when I gave it um, when I gave it to you for the one shot that we played. Yeah. And that was the shortest I could condense all the necessary information down to. So it is very much a game that if you don't know anything about it, trying to jump in and have a high-level game of it, or one that's intrinsic using all the toolbox setting material that you've got, is difficult because you have so much to digest. It's why the normal game would start off as the GM runs it for a normal group of people using the blue book, the World of Darkness or Chronicles of Darkness rulebook. Building up a normal human, you run through the awakening and then you gradually start to introduce the wider world and you gradually start to show them little pieces here and there. So as a player, I would start off as a regular person and become a mage and learn about it through play. Yeah. Now, I had a question about that, which is when you were talking about how people became mages, that seemed to be a very reactive, passive thing. I mean, do you ever get... Uh, characters in it who have heard about this magical world and are going out seeking power or is this just always something that's gifted to you? Almost always it's gifted. It can be quite an engaging series of events depending on how your GM runs it for you because every awakening is different. The only commonality with all of them is that it ultimately ends with them declaring their name or writing their name in one of the watchtowers. Hmm. Um, place in the supernal set up by the oracles where all the basically targeting of hey you, you could be a mage happens. Okay. That it ends up with them declare, writing their name in there and thus having a sympathetic link from themselves to the supernal realm. There is one way that you could potentially know, you, um, know about magic before Awakening, and there is a merit in the game called Sleepwalker, which is essentially you are a person that doesn't, doesn't risk paradoxes much happening around them, um, but you are connected in some way with existing mages and that you know a little bit about mage society that potentially you could awaken after that. You dropped in a word there, Matt, paradox. Ah, uh, one of my favourite pieces. <laughs> Do you want to just say a little bit about... Because that, that rings a bell with me from previous games. Mm -hmm. It's quite a big feature of the game. Yes. Um, more, I'd say more so a feature for Ascension than it is for Awakening. Okay. Um, they also take different forms. Um, in Ascension... It was very much, reality says this is acceptable, this is, reality says this is not acceptable by what people believe how the world works. Yeah. If you would like to say um, you knock a coffee pot off a table, you can catch it before without spilling a drop, that's unlikely, but it is possible. So reality would say, yeah, that's fine. You, your use of forces or fate to... So that doesn't cause that. much on the paradox scale. No. But let's say invoking a fireball and throwing it down the street... Yeah, reality is going to slap your ass so hard for that one because it says normal people shouldn't be able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's reality slaps you back as saying that no, this is consensual, says no. In Awakening, it's different. That you have, as I mentioned, the Supernal on one side of the abyss and you have the Fallen World on the other side and magic is drawn down across them. Paradox is essentially how much of a hold does the abyss get on your magic and twist it before you get to do uh, before you get to do what you want so rather than relying on this kind of consensual take on mm. what is reality yeah okay that it's very much it sees the abyss as an external force corrupting magic and this is a corrupting factor on my character so the more i kind of bend reality and do weird stuff the greater debt of, of paradox that i get and the 
more stress that places on my character? Am I kind of getting that, or is that... It used to be in the old system. Well, in, used to but be, focus yeah. on the new one, I mean... But, no, not so much in the new one. Okay. Um, it's purely dependent on your... Um, on the spells you cast at the time. It has a much more immediate effect. The, the, the kind of lingering, corrupting aspect is um, very much played down. Okay. Um, it, it can happen. I mean, you can be tainted for a period of time, but it doesn't have the same kind of cool effect as it used to do. And of taint, I mean, in, in Vampire, it's inherent that you're kind of losing humanity and you're becoming monstrous. Is, is there any of that kind of factor of corruption and sort of taint in Mage? Do you sort of become less of a person in some way? There's, there's a parallel to it, but not in the same kind of visible fashion. That as a vampire loses humanity, they become more monstrous and more mm. bestial. A mage has what they refer to as wisdom, which again is a morality trait that goes between one and ten. Low is bad, high is good. Um, high is you are someone who is all virtuous and nice, happy, fluffy, and pretty much a very boring character. Um, Whereas if, <laughs> is this just your take on yeah. it, Matt? Or is this what it actually says in the book? No, I, I, look at it from, I look at it from a practical method because if you if you play someone who's got high wisdom, you are not using magic. You are also someone who is not going out of their way to do anything remotely fun, um, as per what I would say is fun in an RPG. You're not right. going out and actively investigating anything. You're not putting yourself in danger. You're basically in a nice little cotton wool bubble right. and you do fuck all. Right. Whereas if you are actively more down a normal person's level, you might be wisdom five between five and seven. Below that is where it's oh, I use magic to kill people. I don't care about what lives I wreck, how I how I change the world around me, and it, you become very much a kind of megalomaniac style. Of and, do you, and do you cease to become a player character at any point, or can you be anywhere on that scale? When you hit zero, that's the point where you become a particular group referred to as the mad. Okay. You sort of touched on the idea of what mages do during a game there. Um, so, I, in a typical game of mage, I've signed up to play a campaign of mage. Uh, I've created my character. What do I actually do once I've done that? Depends on what the GM wants to, uh, to fo make the focus of their game. You can very easily have a group of mages that have built up their concilia, basically their little organisation on the local level, that has its own ruler, it has its own representatives of the different orders and paths, and they exist in fairly nice harmony without any kind of notion of this war happening with the seers. And it's dealing with the supernatural problem of the week that pops up. Um, you could have abyssal incursions, you could have problems with groups, uh, one group they refer to as the Banishers, which are mages who believe that mages are dangerous and therefore should all be killed, that they are a threat to the world, so the, the base of the world would be better off without them. So they decide universal extinction of mages. Um, you could have the Mad, which are those that have dropped off the scale completely and, as they said, gone completely batshit. Um, they serve whatever force they want. They could be they could not serve any force and just be completely chaotic. And you could also have what they refer to as left-handed legacies, one of, one of my favourite antagonists, that there are divisions, um, almost like an advanced class for paths. Um, some are based on order, but they mostly come from paths, where your character can focus their magic in a particular direction. They're a bit like bloodlines in Vampire, um, and so um, lodges in Forsaken, that they all have these kind of advanced classes. And that their big gift in the system, in system terms, is that they can perform limited types of magic without incurring paradox. And also means that because they're, they're not spells, technically, they can't be countered. 
So someone can't use Prime to say that spell doesn't happen. Um, these are effects which you can't stop, generally. Um, one of my favourite of these, that you've got left, as I mentioned, left hand, you've got right hand path, referred to as schools of magic. Uh, right hand, generally good. Left hand, almost universally considered bad by everyone, regardless of whether you're a seer, pentacle, whatever. They are considered the bad guys by everyone. Uh, one of my favourite of those groups that I ran the campaign for at the local club was the Cult of the Doomsday Clock. A uh, wonderful group of people that believe that the, the world is a prison. Therefore, they want to make um, everyone escape. So what's the easiest way to um, cause a mass jailbreak? Destroy the prison! Okay, well, they're trying to bring about nuclear war or something, are they? Or? Uh, um, not nuclear war. Um, they just want to destroy the world by okay. means of what they refer to as doomsday clocks. Um, right. Clocks that destroy time as well as space in a given area. So you could set one off in a building. Um, that building no longer exists. It never has existed. It never will exist. Likewise, the space it occupied also is gone. And it's just a little place where the abyss can leak on through and then start to break down everything around it. Nice. Yeah, they're, a fan they're a fantastic group. Of course, they're all batshit crazy in the, the, the manifesto they spew is a lie, but anyone who starts off going down that path isn't to know that. But building on that, you have your player character, you have your player character group. It sounds like you're very much part of a larger uh, political or, or whatever you want to call it structure. Would you ever have a group which is just a group of mages that come together? They don't know about all this stuff and they just go and do their own thing. Yeah, um, that can be one way that a GM starts or a storyteller starts a game, is that you have obviously awakened. You don't necessarily know that there's this wider group out there, so you could just form your own cabal and do your stuff locally without realizing for long for a long time that there is this wider structure. Sure. Yeah. And one of the ways that I've seen mage played when you have a lot of players is that it becomes a political game. So you have the different orders arguing against each other on the best on how to rule uh, rule an area, what they want to do with magic, how they want to best wage the war against the seers. And it very much becomes a game about politics and ideology rather than magic. That's very much my take on the whole White Wolf premise, really, is there's very political machinations kind of going on between various factions. Mm -hmm. You've talked about sort of monster of the week or supernatural threat of the week as a campaign premise, the pol the political side of things as a campaign premise. Are there any other you know sort of major setups or common setups for campaigns you might encounter? Yeah, um, you could go all out war against the seers. Um, that would probably be my least favourite of the examples. It places a very heavy reliance on combat, and you know my opinion on that. Hmm. Um, but it could be that you could play a really kind of downright down and gritty war. Um, being waged that you also have to keep secret again um, from the masses so they can't know what's going on so you've got a lot of cover-up that would have to happen there you've got a lot of um, personal stakes on the line this is where if, if i was a gm running that kind of thing i'd be start using sears to target people's human connections well it strikes me that that would lend itself very well to a sort of cold war setup almost oh very uh, yeah. yeah with lots of espionage and and you know dirty tricks and stuff like that yeah. that that's where definitely the um because the aspect of playing a guardian of the veil really appeals to me for that, because that is very much you are front line of a cold war in that in that setup. Which makes me think we haven't actually addressed that. Is it always set in the modern day? No. Um, one of the last books that they released was Mage Noir, which is if you want to play the Maltese Falcon effectively with magic, that you are uh, you're looking at that. They. They started doing a few alternative setting books for the different game lines. Lost has it set in Victorian England. Um, Requiem had uh, set, a period set during Rome and also the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, they had different setups for um, for them for the different game lines. But yeah, Mage's one ended up being you could play Mage Noir, mm. so you could really get your Humphrey Bogart on. Now let's take a look at the rules mechanics for Mage the Awakening. Well, one thing I've heard you mention a number of times in discussions about this is how crunchy the new edition is, the, oh, yeah. the second edition, uh, compared to any other White Wolf game, compared to the first edition of uh, Awakening. Mm -hmm. uh, wh what is it that makes it such a crunchy game? It's because there's so many steps involved and so many calculations you have to perform when trying to do magic. Um, at the core of its system, the storyteller system is fairly easy. It's stat plus skill, roll, see how many successes you get, look up the chart for whether it's a fail, a dramatic failure, a success or exceptional success. That's fairly easy and straightforward. The magic side is where it really gets hard. Um, I suppose it's one of those systems where if you do it enough times you will get used to it, but especially if you're guiding new players through it, it, it almost becomes a bit of a parallel for the example I give for Cult, um, the original mechanics of that game, that there's so many steps that you have to go through. And this is just to cast a spell? A single spell involves the following step uh, checklist. Okay, go for it. One, choose what spell you want to do. Uh-huh. So let's say you're using that example of, I want to throw a fireball down the street. Okay. Casting method. You then have to determine whether this is an improvised, or what was also known in first edition as fast casting, a rote or praxis spell. Fast casting is, I haven't got a spell listed on my sheet for this, but I've got the requisite arcana so I can just think it and do it. Right. Uh, that means that you have your gnosis and arcana, basically your power stat and the magic stat that you're using, the highest of the magic stats that you're using for this particular spell. A rote is one that you have cast so many times that you know it, as the name says, by rote, you know uh -huh. it off by heart. Um, it's one that you then mechanically get to do your Gnosis, Arcana, and Skill dice. So you're adding potentially more di um, dice into the dice pool. So I'm making a dice pool. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say, for instance, you've got a Gnosis of three. You've got an Arcana for doing a fireball of three or four. You start off with seven dice. But if you add in like, an athletic skill, you could add another five dice to that. So you're getting up to 12 dice. So it means statistically you're more likely of being able to get more successes and therefore get the spell off. Hmm. Or you can do a Praxis spell, which is Gnosis and Arcana, so lesser dice, but you've personalised it in such a way that you can get an exceptional success with less successes required. Normally an exceptional success means that you have to have five or more successes. This means you can get that effect with only having three successes. So potentially more powerful, but at the cost of reducing your dice pool. So you've worked out, your, you've got at least the first part of your dice pool and you know what the effect is you want to cast. Yeah, so I've got a fistful of dice. Yeah, that is going to get, well, that's going to get eroded very quickly. Uh, you now need to determine how many reaches you can apply to this. Reaches are effects that you can put onto the spell, but they risk invoking paradox. Um, such things normally reaches would be used to apply for would be to make it an instant spell rather than a ritual casting, which... Normally for Fireball, you want to cast that immediately. You don't want to spend three or four hours charging it up and then releasing it. So does this use up dice out of my hand to do this? doesn't use dice out of your hand yet, um, but it does affect whether you can incur Paradox or not. Uh, you have a certain number of free reaches that you can apply, determined by what level it is of the Arcana you're using to generate the effect. If you've got Greater Arcana, and it's a very low-level effect, you're going to get a bucket load of free reaches. 
But if you're trying to cast something really on the fly, really immediately, and you haven't quite got the time or you haven't quite got the power you would like over and above what you need, you can take additional reaches, but that then adds to Paradox later. This is where this should be a video podcast, just so you can see the looks of incomprehensible <laughs> confusion on Paul's my face. Glazing over. Yeah. Yeah. This, I said it was complicated. Okay, so I've still got my fistful of dice. I'm just focusing okay. on that. I'm looking at that for reassurance right. right now. And now it gets eroded. Okay. Because you need to determine fact. Uh, you need to d- determine spell factors. You need to look at how long is this uh, spell going to last. What's its right. duration? Okay. What's its scale? How big and grandiose is it going to be? How much potency is it going to have? If you're looking at someone trying to cancel the effect, and, of the, and the other more end. of the the harder that makes it, the more dice I take out of my hand. Yep. You so start the less losing. Likely I am to get a success. Yeah. Okay. You start minusing dice to add different um, different amounts of those factors the in. The bells and whistles. Okay. Right. Then you can start adding dice, maybe back to that dice. Well, of course. Why wouldn't you? (laughs) By adding yantras, which are... um, Mm. The the cynical ways here, how can I banjo get more dice? Yantras. (laughs) Yantras. Yeah, Yeah, I never go anywhere without my yantras. Yeah. These are things that the, the player can use to colour how it is that they're casting this magic. What tools have they got with them? How do they represent it? How does it look like when they um, when they cast this thing? So cool colour. Yeah, it's basically add colour, do a little bit of narration, get a few dice back. Right. But again, you're limited on how much you can have determined by your gnosis. You then pay any mana, which is uh, kind of your reserve battery of en- energy, which are needed for some spells. Yeah. Um, some spells have an inherent mana cost. Others are by the types. Like if it's an improvised spell, you have to pay mana for it. So right. can you actually change the amount of mana you pay to get more or fewer dice, or is that just a fixed cost depending on what you've done so far? You can spend more mana to reduce paradox, which comes up after this. Okay. Yeah. I'm now picturing, like, we've gone through all this. And I'm like, okay, I've got one D10 left in my hand now. <laughs> that, that, that is essentially how it can well, work. Well, roll it. If you saw uh, seven or more, you've done it. It's eight or more, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why couldn't we just do that? <laughs> okay, so are we there now, Matt? No, nope. we there. No, no, of course. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just rushing it. Really. You now have to work out how much paradox is going to affect your spell. Um, there are things to take into account of how much paradoxical magic has been casted in areas so far, uh, so far. How much of an abyssal taint is here? Um, is the spell inherently um, paradoxical for the amount of free re- um, additional reaches you've taken above your cap? And then you work out the paradox dice pool. You then, before you even roll that, decide: Do you want to let it loose and affect your spell, or do you want to internalize it? So basically, do you want to do you want to be the one that takes the full hit of paradox, or do you be the one? Do you want to just be chaotic and say fuck it, let the rest of the world deal with it in your immediate vicinity? You roll paradox. You're looking for no successes or fewer successes as possible, so you're oh, looking whoa, for the whoa, dice. Hold on, I rolled dice there. So was that yeah. was that to cast the spell? Nope. No, no. That's the <laughs> right. Sorry, I woke up there and I thought I was doing something. I never thought this would be the most interesting part of the show. <laughs> you roll paradox first. You could, you base your dice pool on a combination of those factors, things like how many reaches have I taken, how much paradoxical magic has been cast in the area, mm. what's the abyssal taint here, and so on. That gives you a second pot of dice that you then roll. You're looking for no successes or as few successes as there as possible. So if you do get successes here, what do they do? Depending on how many there are, they could be things, um, again, also then determined by have you internalised it or have you let it loose in the wider okay. world. If you internalise it, you're taking um, you're taking damage, but you can roll to mitigate how much of that you take. And that's a separate roll. Yeah, that's a separate roll as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Don't want to skimp on the rolls, nope. Matt. <laughs> Um, you then have um, a look on a separate table um, if you've externalised it, basically let it unleashed it upon the world, right? Um, to see 
Um, does it affect your magic? If it does, then does it maybe have a different, uh, entirely different effect? Does it hit someone else? Um, does an abyssal creature get summoned as a result of this being cast? You look up a table depending. Um, so crazy on how side effects. Is. Yeah, there yeah. are crazy, yeah, yeah. crazy ass stuff. I like that the sound happen. of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. but we still haven't rolled for the spell yet, right? Nope. No. Okay. Now you get to roll it. Okay. Yay! <laughs> and you can still fuck up, and, <laughs> and after all that, it won't work. <laughs> Nine times out of ten, nothing happens. Right, okay. Um, um, so, that should have been a show in itself, I think. Yeah, really. I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, maybe, maybe we can do a follow-up episode where we make a dice roll in Mage, yeah. spend 45 minutes just building up the dice pool. <laughs> and people thought, you know, fourth ed D&D combats took a long time. Okay. Yeah, I... This is going to sound like me taking the piss, but no, it's a serious question. Has anyone actually written an app or a website or anything like that that allows you to do all this stuff automatically? Because I'm mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, for example, the summoning spell in mm-hmm. Lamentations of the Flame Princess. It's nowhere near as complicated as this, but it is fairly complicated. There's lots of steps. And someone did a fantastic web app uh, that basically automates all of that. So uh, you, you can just you know, put in a couple of parameters, hit a button, and you get your result at the end of it. Potentially, but the problem they've been there's so many of those steps are variable um, mm, that it's yeah. just as easy to go down the list. And by the time you've done it in the sheet, you might as well have just done it manually anyway. And we're making light of it, but I mean, it does take that long, right? It is so involved. It can, if you're playing every step. Um, I try to when I um, when I run it, I try to cut out a few of those steps. Like Yantras, I just say you're gonna add color, you're gonna get some extra dice, just have your maximum amount. I don't care because they're going to get eroded anyway by choosing your spell factors. But it's choosing those factors and then minus um, eroding your dice pool that does take the, does, does take the time. And I don't want to go into a whole other discussion of mechanics, but obviously this is magic. Is combat much of a factor in mage? And is it anywhere near as complex as this? No, no, combat's fairly simple. But okay. it's, it's, if you end up doing magical combat, yes, it becomes a pain sure. in the ass. Right, right. But... No, if you're just doing regular combat, that's that is pretty simple. That's you build your dice pool by a combination of looking at your merits um, if they alter certain attack um, attack pools, stat plus skill minus off the defense of your target. Roll it done. So, I guess the big question for me then is: I the name of the game is Mage. You're playing mages. This is all about magic. So I'd expect all this to be a fairly big part of the game. Uh, do you find, in your experience of having played and run this, do you find this complexity around the magic system actually acts as a deterrent for doing what really the game is fundamentally about? It can be for some people, but I do find a lot of people that sign up to play Mage like that, comple- um, like that complexity. Okay, right. Um, for example, when I ran the game at the club, we had... I'd say at least two of the large sessions that we had were purely going through and working out how to cast a really complicated set of spells one after the other. But people yeah. liked doing it to work out how much, how many dice can I put over here, what factors do I need to bring in, what setup do I need to do, what spells do I need to cast before I can do this, and bringing in that level of almost well, planning, essentially, was something that they really liked. And I can see that actually being quite fun if it's, say, something like a big ritual. I mean, I've I've played games of unknown armies where people have been putting together rituals and using tilts and so mm-hmm. on, and, and you know, that, all that planning and so on has been a big part of it. And, and for something big and complex that's going to be a set piece for the game, that, you know, sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, I've played games of Sorcerer as well where, you know, people have got round to doing summonings and bindings of demons, and that's supposed to be a big, huge thing. So, 
yes, building up the pools there and doing the things to tip the scales in your your uh, to your advantage. You know that that's that's all really fun role playing stuff. And that, yeah, I can see that being exactly the case here. But my understanding is not every bit of magic in mages like that. You're talking about you know things like casting fireballs, the instantaneous mm-hmm. spells. Are there any shortcuts to doing stuff like that when it's stuff that shouldn't be set pieces? That's, at least in terms of colour, where fast casting comes in, where it is stuff that is completely off the cuff and random and um, completely inventive, where a player goes, well, I need to solve this problem. This will overcome this problem. Do I have the arcana to meet this on my sheet? Yes, I do. Right, I do it. Cool. But then it's a case of still having to go through how to cast that spell, still go through the same set of mechanics. But but if you're doing it fairly regularly, if it's the same kind of spell, uh, do do you at least kind of get used enough to the the, the shorthand for doing that? So you can sort of say, right, it's that dice pool, that dice pool. Okay, yes, okay, check this table, bang, bang, roll, done. As long as you're doing it, uh, whether it be an improvised spell or be a rote or whatever, um, if you do it enough times and, like you say, you get that I know I'm going to be adding this, I know this is going to happen, I want this particular effect, you can shortcut a lot of that okay but there are still external factors that when you come to for instance like paradox uh whether you suddenly have to put more reaches in that yes you are going to have to tailor it a little bit but if you do it enough times yeah bang done now let's take a look at how mage fits into the larger world of darkness the games that we're familiar with werewolf vampire and so on are all part of this world of darkness Mage is also part of that collection. Would one play it with a a big overlap with those other aspects, or is it very much a standalone game? That really comes down to preference of the players and the GM at the end of the day. Um, The books themselves do incorporate an element of overlap, but it's how much of that overlap you want to to play up. Um, For example, in the original Requiem core book for Vampire, it gives you a list of what do you think of the other covenants, right. but also what do you think of werewolves, what do you think of mages, because those were the three yes. uh, the three big games that they originally uh-huh. released. So there are opinions, and blatantly it's therefore stated that the different races know about each other, and that there is a commonality between, and uh, there is at least a common world between them. World of Darkness Chicago is a source book all about how the three um, the three groups operate together and how they share the city together. And so with that, you could end up with a party or a group that is made up of, of mages and werewolves and vampires, or, or are they always going to be separate units? No, not potentially, but again, this comes down to personal preference. Um, like, for me, I'm not a massive fan of werewolf, so I wouldn't have any interest in playing um, playing in a werewolf game. But I could potentially tolerate another player in a group playing a werewolf because they're going to have to look after their own mechanics, not me. But it's really, it has to be a consensus between the, um, the GM and the players to say how much of the wider world do you want to draw in. I think it works probably better as a standalone game um, because then you are purely looking at the themes just that Mage is about rather than having to bring in all the baggage that the other games bring in with them because it's not going to be a little bit. It's going to be a lot of stuff that it draws in. Sure. That said... There are a couple of little Easter eggs. If you read between some of the books, you suddenly go and start to draw links that are um, deliberately hidden there. Um, one of the ones that I remember when I when I was reading it, running a uh, set of vampire games in the Isles of Darkness um, fan club, was uh, a moment where I kind of jumped out of a chair and went, "That's this!" 
and it was I felt I felt really good about having put up, kind of drawn the link between the two. There's enough um, where my love of number stations comes from uh, from a different scenario. <laughs> um, number stations are mentioned in the uh, Mage book Summoners as being odd enough as it states they are number stations that they chew out numbers that they're just spurting on the airwaves and it's a code you decode. Um, Mages, if they listen to this, can decode it um, with a combination of arcana, or as, as can regular people, potentially. And it will lead to a series of coordinates where there's this large red pillar that's uh, or obelisk that's been hidden in a far-off part of the world with an impression of a face in it. If a mage puts their face in it and passes a gnosis roll, the obelisk crumbles. That's all that happens as far as the, as far as the mage is concerned. It's a bit of a weird fringe thing on the world of darkness that maybe they will get to know what the hell this meant or maybe the they might realize what's going on but they're probably more interested in the operators the ones sending these messages out on the number station because they have an intrinsic connection with death um they are ghost orbs like advanced ghosts that know um, that have a wider connection to the magic of death if you then read um, a double set of books put out for Requiem, um, Ancient Mysteries and Ancient Bloodlines. It refers to an incident known as the Montrose Party, where a group of um, vampires were slaughtered as they uh, crossed, uh, basically like the expansion of the US, um, that they all got slaughtered when they ran across a group of vampires that were already there. Um, this group um, referred to themselves as the Stuau, the cruel ones, were looking after an area that they refer to as the Land of Worms, uh, an area, again, off on the very outskirts of civilization that no one really liked to go to that was almost like a dead land, a wasteland. And they said, no, we protect this area, you can't come in. You then read the blood, um, the Bloodline book, which explains more about the Stuau, and explains that the Land of Worms is a staging ground for um, a group of creatures known as the Helminth. The Helminth are the group of creatures that effectively think of the dolls in Cthulhu, giant, man, um, giant uh, reality-eating worms that will break through when so many of those obelisks are destroyed in a 24-hour period. Hmm. So you put the, um, the, the word Helminth is the bit that kind of connects the two together. They're just mentioned in passing in the Bloodline book, but it's explained in the fact of the GM section of if you destroy so many obelisks, these things are going to come through and start eating the world. This is oh, game okay. over, man. Game over. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing that kind of intrigues me a bit i well, i suppose about the world of darkness in general but particularly about mages i mean the world of darkness is always kind of skirted the line between horror and urban fantasy but it doesn't strike me that for what is ostensibly you know part of a horror line that mage is a horror game in any way again it depends on how you look at it there are elements of it which are blatantly out and out horror um, that's the abyss um, the stuff that it does to people, the things that come out of there, the creatures that come out of there, the left-handed legacies that worship and act for it, that is definitely all traditional horror territory. The rest of it, though, looking at the astral realms, looking at delving into the lands of the dead, um, the Aeneros, the, the dreamscapes and so on, and all the other realms and baggage that come with the, the wider World of Darkness cosmology, that is very much fantasy. So I would say that it's probably a 70-30 split. Um, 30% horror, 70% fantasy. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening.
It is that time once again when we thank those lovely, wonderful, generous people who have given us money via Patreon. You can find a link to our Patreon page on the website, and if you give us money there, that basically helps keep us on the air. It pays for our uh, hosting costs, our bandwidth costs, uh, uh, new equipment, and generally all the things that allow us to make a podcast and get it out to you. So thank you, as ever, to each and every one of you who do that. And we have a few new people to thank. A big thanks to Wayne Rossi. Indeed. Thank you very much, Wayne. Yes, thank you, Wayne. Another thanks goes out to Sean Blankenship. So, thank you very much, Sean. Yes, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. And moving up to the $3 level now, thank you very much, and cheers to Sid February. Cheers, Sid. Hey, cheers, Sid. Cheers. It looks like a lot of people have been active on social media again. Yeah, we've had some great feedback, once again, from all of you, uh, particularly on uh, the latest episode. Uh, The episodes we put out about non-player characters recently, uh, we had a a post on Google+, Plus on our community there, from Jason Janicki. Uh, He said, uh, One of my favourite things to do to get into character for NPCs is to have a prop. I have a huge assortment of hats and other things that really put me in the mood and mindset of a particular NPC. And this is something that had never actually occurred to me before. Oh, I have used props occasionally, but yeah, very rarely. It's just if I've got something to hand that, that kind of works. But yeah, but I, I like the idea, yeah. Well, I like the idea of having a box of hats and yeah. every time yeah, you have a new NPC come on, you just swap hats. I've got a load of hats, including a really big purple top hat that has a, a huge peacock feather coming out of it. I want, a pe- I want an NPC that wears that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, write the, you write the scenario, <laughs> Matt, so... <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen with the next one right now. <laughs> and also on Google+, Plus, our friend Anthony Lee Dudley. Anthony, Anthony Lee Dudley. Dudley. Anthony Lee... Oh, God. <laughs> don't leave me hanging there. <laughs> we can't say his name anymore without, uh, without that, that coming to mind. And who is also soon off to Canada, I believe. Yes. Yes, yeah. congratulations on that finally coming together, Anthony. But he leaves us a comment regarding accents that we that we discussed and uh, which Matt so eloquently Accident- produced earlier in the show. <laughs> He's no match for your accents, though, Paul. Uh, you are the true master of accents. Well, you know. <laughs> Including the guy's Legion uppercut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anthony D. Dudley says uh, regarding accents. And the other physical changes I adopt perform the important function for me of keeping NPC personalities distinct in my mind whilst I'm running games. Ah, so physical changes. Like the uppercut. So that's all part (laughs) of it, clearly. They help me keep separate perspectives and stories compartmentalised and reduce the need for note-checking. Yeah, and this is yeah a very interesting point. I think I, I, I certainly find much the same thing. Even though I don't tend to use accents and body language for it, that I yeah I will, as I've mentioned in the episode, use things like speech patterns and word choices and and emotions and and sometimes body language, um, and yeah, it does exactly the same thing for me. That I. I it makes me feel much more like I'm in the head of that character and I can speak for them and I know what they're likely to say and what information they're likely to impart and how they're likely to react without ever really thinking about it. Almost as if you're getting into a role. <laughs> yeah, that's never, a... never catch on. Yeah. yeah. Weird idea. Yeah. 
I think we've been rumbled. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the Daily Dwarf on Twitter has pretty much uh, summed up our main toolkit of yeah, how to three approach, bullet points. Yeah, how to approach Pop Cthulhu. Yeah. The good friends of JE guide to success in Pop Cthulhu scenarios. One, punch every NPC in the face. Yep, that's Scott. Yep. Two, blow up every location. That's me. And number three, winning. <laughs> can, can I just say that I just punch NPCs in the face, you shoot them in the face, Matt. Well, that's when they start monologuing. So he said, hey, I've, tried to lo- I've got a whole load of read, al- read aloud text I've got to get through. Bang! <laughs> or, or if they're driving a bus and you're a passenger. He pulled a gun on me. <laughs> that, was, that was all <laughs> I'm going to say to that. <laughs> I, and blow up every location. I think that's a bit simplistic. I mean, sometimes mm. we burn them down as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's an important distinction. Yes. Yeah, not every problem can be solved with dynamite. Some of them can be solved with fire, too. Fire. Mm. But yes, winning, generally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. If you've got a big enough trail of corpses and burnt-out buildings behind you, you know you've won. Yeah, you know you're doing it right. (laughs) And as always, if you want to make a contribution... To the discussions, you can find us on Google+, on Facebook, and on Twitter. And also, there's a contact form on the BlasphemousTomes.com website. And of course, on the website, you will find links to all our other social media presences. So, you know, if you can't find us easily on Facebook, for example, just go to BlasphemousTomes.com and look for the link. And in summary, what are our final thoughts about Mage the Awakening? I suppose the big question is, um, and maybe you're in a bit better position to answer this than the rest of us, Matt, which is, how likely are you to play particularly this new version of Awakening, particularly compared to other versions of Mage? You know, is, is this the, the, the new thing you've been waiting for, or are you more likely to go back to, you know, say, the, the revamped Mage 20? Mm-hmm. If I could combine the simplistic approach to the rules that... Oh, that's not a pejorative, that's uh, something I like. I like my rule systems that can fit on the back of a fag packet. Uh, if I was to take the simple rule system from um, the 20th anniversary of Ascension and put that with Awakening, I'd have my perfect combination. Uh, they are two very different games. and I like both of them, but I prefer Awakening because it has a bigger canvas, it has more elements that you can throw into it, and it's not bogged down by the metaplot. Whereas the rule system, second ed, as as you found, is complicated, mm. is crunchy. There's a lot of steps. That's a little bit of a turn-off for me, but it's not, at least in my reaction to it, it's an improvement. It's not as bad as the first edition. First edition had a different approach where you had to divide up successes after the dice roll. There's lots of ways your dice pool could get bigger. There's lots of ways stuff could banjo in against it. And I didn't like to play the power gamer of, oh, if you combine X, Y, Z, you can get A, B, C. And no, I, I much prefer the way that it keeps it as a single spell approach each time and that you don't end up banjoing and you don't end up piling more dice and doing so many complicated uh, calculations above what we've already seen second ed does. What about you, Scott? Can you see yourself playing this? I mean, I can say, I think I know your answer. No, you can't. Yeah, I played the first edition of Mage of the Awakening for a short campaign that our friend Trudy ran, oh gosh, over 10 years ago. And um, yeah, I quite enjoyed that. Uh, I won't say it was my favourite game ever. Um, I found, I mean, the mechanics of that first edition were were fairly easy to get to grips with. I I never quite got my head around the cosmology of it and what I was quite supposed to do as a player character. 
From everything you've told me about second edition, no, I think the complexity of it would turn me off. I, you know, I I don't want to be completely dismissive because I've not played it. And it might be that, you know, I, I sit down, you know, look at all this, do, try it a few times and internalise it and it's all fine. But at first blush, no, it, it sounds... It sounds far too complex for me, you know, with the kind of games that I enjoy these days. I like simplicity. How about you, Paul? Well, I think I like simplicity, but more than that, I think I like being able to make up my own stuff. Make up, You know, if I'm GMing a game, I like to be able to make up my own stories and so on. I feel I would have to absorb an awful lot of background information, which you obviously have, Matt. You're steeped in it. I just don't have the interest in absorbing all that background. I mean, that's that's a good question. I mean, that's something we didn't really cover in this, which is how modular is all that? I mean, if you wanted to focus on one particular part of the game world, like you know, Paul just said, um, and you know, keep the the scope of it limited, not have to absorb this huge cosmology and all these different factions and so on, can can you just you know pick a small part of it and say, right, that's my game? It would be possible. It would be a very not say linear game, that's not the right word for it, but it would be quite narrow focused. Mm. Like, for instance, if um, for the one shot that I ran um, at the club as the kind of precursor to the campaign that I then ran, um, knowing about the Seers of the Throne and knowing about their power structure, you could you could do a whole Seer campaign and not have to worry about the wider world because there's enough backstabbing and bitching and fighting going on amongst them that that's enough to drive drive a campaign anyway. But as GM, you've kind of got to get your head around a lot of stuff, haven't you, Trevor? We've talked about the complexities for a player, but for a GM, man, that seems like a lot to take on. There is a lot there, yeah. which is the one thing for me now. If I'm to run um, to run Mage again, one of the things I would say is that I'm going to end up limiting my player base quite a bit because I don't want people that know the cosmology and the ba- um, that are steeped in that background already so that I don't have to bring them up to speed because that takes a long time. I mean, Matt, if you weren't already into all this and you knew all the background and you'd been with it for 20 years would you now take on this as a totally new game coming to it fresh it would have to be something that grabs me a hell of a lot yeah which i think this would um, because there's enough there's enough scope here that there are lots of things that i really enjoy about the setting like i love the mystery of the abyss i love the fact that the origin of mage is still shrouded and is open to gm interpretation that they could come up with their own thing that's not atlantis that again there are so many options and so many things that you can approach in the game that it's it is wonderful that there is so much you've got to play around with but it is daunting because there is so much of it i think what it comes down to paul is that you and i are just too old for this too old for this shit (laughs) (laughs) well i guess hopefully the listener has been able to decide for themselves you know where they stand and, and whether this grabs them or not and the, the kind of complexities and interest that, that lies within Mage of the Awakening. Without being too, uh, too over the top, that is pretty much the tip of the iceberg because we've got nowhere near the rest of the cosmology. Okay. Well, this is the first of 100 shows on this topic. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we'll be delving deeper into this in the next 99 episodes. Next stop, the Astral Realms! <laughs> <laughs> no, really, this is it. No more, no more Mage. Although maybe Ascension at one point. <laughs> He's looking at me over the microphone. <laughs> and it's a... You shall not pass! Good night from me. And it's a medal not in the affairs of wizards, Cheerio from me. And it's a... You're a wizard, Harry! <laughs> Farewell from me. <laughs>
Blasphemoustomes.com mm-hmm.